Okay, this is uh, Ronald Dorsey, and we're here today with Mr. Lucas Weikert of the Wind Up Wine Bar in New York City. And uh, that's located in the Flatiron District, for those not familiar with New York City, uh, just a uh, couple of blocks away from Madison Square Park. So today, uh, Lucas is going to give us a little bit of uh, information about his wine journey and, and what he does today. Uh, so Lucas, uh, first we'll start by uh, telling our audience uh, the wine that we're enjoying here today at uh, the One Bottle at a Time podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's very great to be here. So we just opened a bottle of the Tinker, which is a red blend from Hawker Wine Company. And uh, it's a company we started last year, late last year. And we, we just launched um, a couple of months ago this, this wine, and it's, it's delightful. I like it. <laughs> um, and, you know, we're sourcing it out of California, and we got a winery out there in Santa Barbara who's making for us. And uh, so we're bringing it into New York, and, you know, we're just trying to introduce it to the market and trying to, to get this, this company and this brand off the ground. So it's, it's a very exciting journey right now, and we're just beginning it. So it's, it's really cool to see that people are, you know, being very positive about it right now. Yeah, I, yeah, I enjoy it myself. So once again, the blend is the, uh, the varietals? So the blend is uh, primarily Zinfandel. Okay. And I love Zinfandel, so it's, uh, it's really great to be working with that varietal. And then we, we got some Sangiovese in there and also some Merlot. Okay, wonderful. I like it. It's very, uh, uh, I would say, a uh, uh, medium body, very smooth, and, and it really tastes, uh, uh, I don't know what the, the uh, vintage is, but it really has a, a taste that it's been aged pretty well. So, yeah, so part. this is um, it's 2016, okay. so it, it saw a little bit of barrel time, um, but for us the focus really was on making a very drinkable, fruit-forward, you know, acid-driven wine that has just a touch of, of sweetness just to like give a little bit of roundness to it, but it's, it's not sweet, but it has a great fruit. Right. Um, and it's, it's very quaffable. Okay, um, yeah. So cool. we can, <laughs> It's very drinkable, and you know it's great in the in the summer if you put it on ice and have a have a have a nice little cool red. Um, and it's it's yeah, we're really excited about it. Okay, and your uh, your personal involvement was uh, to what extent was your personal involvement in, in bringing this particular uh, wine together? So we, I've been I've been working in in the New York wine industry for about like seven years and I've always been involved in wine in one shape or another basically it started with my parents giving me wine and, and mm. going to Tuscany and, and trying wines out there and it was a really mm. great experience and and so wine has always been something that has been really you know, close to my heart and something that was really exciting to me okay um, and so we were like okay let, you know I, I wanted to create something that is my own and being able to to use it in my in the restaurant I work at right now, and also using the contacts, it was a it was an interesting idea maybe to say okay, let's let's rather than sell somebody else's wine, let's sell my own wine, right, right, um, and bring it and use it as a you know as a sort of point of of departure from from here and then see how it goes. And it's been it's been pretty successful so far. We've had um, 
about 300 cases made, so it's still wow. pretty small. Mm. Um, but you know, we're we're getting a new a new batch in, and it's moving well, and people are really excited about it. So I'm I'm very happy. Yeah, I'm happy too. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's really nice touch. A really very smooth wine. Very very good. Okay, so now let's talk a little bit about. Uh, as you mentioned, you you grew up in uh, Germany, so let's kind of you know talk a little bit about. Uh, leaving Germany and, and making your way around the world uh, and, and how you got to New York. So give us a little bit about your, your, your trek, uh, so to speak, from, from Germany to New York, from a young man to the man you are today. Sure. Um, so, as I said, I was born in Germany. I was born in a place called Leipzig, which is in the Central East. And when I was about 15, I, uh, I went to a boarding school. Uh, my parents were like, hey... Let's go and send you to a to a small island, the Isle of the Isle of Man, which is between Liverpool and Dublin, which is a small island in the Irish Sea, and it was the classic right. English boarding school experience. Right. Um, now that's the place where they do those uh, crazy motorcycle races, right? right? Where people kind of the TT, right? Yeah, they lose an arm one year, uh, a, a, a leg one year, and they, they keep coming back, right? There is a lot of. <laughs> I think the average was when I was there was like. About 10 people would die every year in, wow. in the races, and it was crazy. It's, wow. uh, it's apparently the, the most difficult road race in, in the world because the, the streets are so small. Mm. And when you're on those bikes, you know, you're going like 200. So now, did you, did you yourself, did you participate in, in being in the audience and watch all of the mayhem and the madness? Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, in fact, the actual racetrack was going right past my school. And, wow. and so you, we could not leave the school during the race. So you'd be, you know, on the street watching the, the bikes zoom past. And it was, <laughs> it's a it's pretty amazing sight. <laughs> I can imagine that, you know, so, so that, would be, that would be grade school for you at that time or high school? Though? High school, yeah. Wow, I can imagine being in a high school class <laughs> and motorcycles running by and you're trying to concentrate on whatever you're supposed to be learning. Right? So, yeah, so there was... Humanly, normally we had uh, it was days off, so that it was normally doing. They would basically make a make a holiday out of that week when the races happens, because basically nobody would be able to get around anyway. Mm. Um, so we were actually able to go and see the races, um, okay. which was an amazing experience, and it's a beautiful place. Wonderful, wonderful. So let's let's fast forward to a little bit about. Uh, you mentioned to me that you uh, eventually taught Shakespeare. So give yes. us, give us a, how did so, you get there? How did you get to that from, from high school, let's say? So theater had always been something that I'm really excited about. Um, and so I you know, did plays in school and all that stuff. And then mm -hmm. I ended up reading drama at, uh, at university um, in the southwest of England. And I started directing Shakespeare with, with this, one of my, you know, the students that were there in, in, the, in, in my college. Mm. And um, it, it really started to be something that I was very passionate about. Um, and I formed a theater company in college. Um, we directed a, a bunch of shows, mm. uh, and then we brought it to London. And um, we, did a, we did a show there. Um, and it was, you know, something, Shakespeare particularly, something that I, I love. You love Shakespeare, yeah. right, right? Me too. I'm, I'm a uh, Shakespeare fan. And for me, I, as an adult, that's when I learned to appreciate it. Because right. obviously, well, you know, you learn it in the United States, that's part of your uh, literary education, and uh, for me, uh, I hated it <laughs> when I was in when I was in that's high school. Hard. Yeah, yeah, we you know we did Macbeth, 
the Merchant of Venice, stuff like that. And at the time in high school, I was like, oh man, I don't want to do this stuff. This is boring. But as an adult, uh, I appreciated it. And the thing that made me appreciate it was uh, when I read journalists. And a lot of journalists, one of the techniques that they use is uh, they'll use literary metaphors right. to kind of outline a particular story. So uh, I think I was reading a story about, uh, about debt, personal debt or corporate debt. And uh, they use the uh, pound of flesh right. metaphor from, from the Merchant of Venice. Is that right? Is yes, it from it the is, Merchant yeah. of Venice? And that's when I got it. I was like, okay, <laughs> you know this. Okay, the, you know when we, you know when I was in the in eleventh grade and Mrs. Williams was teaching us Shakespeare, and I was like, ah, man, I hate this stuff. And when I read that particular article, I was like, okay, I I get it now. You know, I get it. So, you know, it's wonderful. You know, Shakespeare. Uh, as an adult, those things kind of come together. Cause I guess here in the United States, anyway, because when you're learning the classics. Uh, in high school in the United States as a young person, ah, you know, you hate to do it, you know, but as an adult, it, everything kind of came together for me. So, right. you know, so, but, so, but obviously for you, the, the Shakespeare bug kind of bit you as a young man. Huh? I think so. I mean, you know, I think that um, Shakespeare, you know, the, it's, it's a heightened language. It's a, it's a foreign language. And when you, when you read it, it doesn't necessarily make sense on the page, mm. um, but when it is spoken by an actor who knows exactly what they're saying, mm. it becomes alive because, right. uh, in my opinion, what's written down is rather than being a literary sort of text in a sort of prosaic form, mm. it's it's a score sheet. It's it's sheet music for right. actors. Right. Okay. And the moment an actor knows what they're looking for, has the, the technique and the the sort of verse technique that you'd have to have as an actor, it comes alive. You know, mm. you, when you look at Mozart, in the, you know, you you look at the the sheet music. It, it doesn't. You like okay, I, this right, looks right. pretty, and there's lots of right. things ink, all over the place. on the page. Yeah. <laughs> right. The, the, it takes the uh, the skill. And the emotion of the musician to bring right. it to life, right? Because I'm a musician myself, right. so exactly. definitely, right? Because even uh, you know, learning as a child, uh, I remember the teacher telling me, "You're not playing any music." You know, he told me, "You're playing notes on the page." Right. You know, you you know, he told me, "You have to bring the music out of yourself, out of your soul." That's just notes on the page. He said, "You know," so you know, it's very interesting that that you grab, you know, and that's kind of a. Uh, uh, I guess the opposite of it in the United States, because like I said, for me, I didn't appreciate the classics, particularly Shakespeare until I was an adult. And even as an adult, probably after 25. So, you know, for yourself, you know, uh, in, in the European culture, I don't, I don't know if it's uh, when you're a young person that Shakespeare or other classic literature, is it something that's... Uh, more readily accepted for young people, or is it more? Or do you get exposure to it at a younger age? I think there is a little bit more exposure to it. Um, I think particularly in England, because obviously Shakespeare is English, and it's sort of the you know the real basis of a lot of the dramatic texts in, in English are sort of that Elizabethan area where, and, and particularly Shakespeare, that really formed a lot of drama that came afterwards, mm. and and so it's there is definitely a focus on it. But I also know a lot of people who don't 
care for it. But most of the people who never who feel it's foreign to them are people who have not experienced it in in a theater or have not had contact with actors on it. And I've done a little bit of educational theater myself, and it's really something that when you when you activate the text as an actor, it becomes something mm. that is you know it becomes very powerful and 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 kids particularly. Mm love the stories you mm. know love storytelling and mm. once once you take that difficulty of the text away and right, it becomes right. just a story <coughs> then it's it's alive and people really connect to it mm. and mm. i think that's that's the gateway you know right. for somebody not just you know miss williams in in ninth grade going right you should read this piece of text you right, know, right, right i don't right. understand but what you know like <laughs> exactly it right. looks weird and it's mm. got weird words in it but mm. when when you have somebody really telling you those things and really performing it it becomes something really beautiful right yeah that's an, uh, another experience that i had uh probably uh in in, in grade school was uh uh getting to hear a uh, string quartet live Right. Because once again, for me, you know, at that point, probably I was 14 years old. And to me and my friends at that time, classical music was like, oh, that's boring. You know, oh, oh that's what boring. That's, that's, uh, well, I play, uh, I play piano and a little guitar and, and I sing a, little, sing a bit myself. So. And, uh, but at that particular time, you know, whatever exposure I had to classical music, to me and to my friends growing up, oh, that's boring stuff. But we had a uh, string quartet coming to the school one day. And as you said, to get that live performance where the human beings bring the notes to life and to hear it for the first time on the stage live just blew me away. I was like, wow, you know, you know, this is like, this is amazing. Right. You know, so once again, now as an adult, I have a greater, greater appreciation of, uh, of that type of music. Right. So, okay, so now... Oh, after your, your Shakespeare, where, where did you go from there? So I spent some time in Argentina. Um, I was out there shortly after school, and I was there for about 10 weeks. And my parents were, you know, very wonderful in, in basically saying, okay, like, you've just done school for however many years. Right, you know, right, right. Go and do something. Okay. You know, like, we've... They've been to Argentina before, and they, mm. they really had a good time. So I was like, okay, well, here's, we will support you for these for a couple of weeks for you to go and, and take a little bit of a break and okay. see something. Oh, that's cool. And that's cool. My the only condition was that my my dad said you have to take tango classes in <laughs> Buenos Aires because oh, wow. then you can dance with your mother, and your mother would love that. Okay, cool. So I'm glad to hear that because when you initially told me about your journey from Germany to England to Argentina to the United States, yeah, and I was saying, okay, well, either he's a trust fund baby or he's making the ladies real happy everywhere he goes. And, 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 I and, mean, and, and, and he's giving them good wine and, and they're looking out for him. <laughs> the ladies are looking out for Lucas everywhere he goes. It's like, okay, all right, Luke, Lucas can go to England, he can go to Argentina and and he don't have to pay his way. He can he can just you know serve the ladies good wine and make them happy, and and, and uh, he can work his way around the world. <laughs> I mean, so. yes, there is that. I, I was very lucky to be able to get scholarships through school, so that was something that I was I was very fortunate about. And mm. uh, when and at the time it was in I think it was in two thousand 
and eight. So it was just after the crash mm. um, and going to Argentina for a couple of weeks was not expensive whatsoever because uh, okay, the, the pesa right. is just, mm. just well, like pummeled. Right. So, so now how did you like that? How did you, how did you like the, the, the tango lessons and the whole different, uh, uh, different uh, environment, right. language and things like that? How did, you, how did you like it? I loved it. Mm. And, you know, I remember arriving in, in Buenos Aires. I had no idea where I was. I did not speak any Spanish. And... <laughs> I was like, okay, cool, like, where do I have to go? And I had two addresses, one of the hostel I was going to stay in, one of the tango school where I was going to take a class. Mm. And I went to the hostel, and it was closed, nobody was there, and I tried to call the person, but I didn't speak any Spanish, and the person didn't speak any English at all. And so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll call you back, you know? <laughs> and I go to the tango school, and, um, you know, they, they spoke English, they, they helped me, and they were like, okay, like, go there he's gonna wait for you and also there's a class in six hours so you better be back then I was like okay cool <laughs> and I took that class and then the next day I took another class and the following day and and suddenly I had spent all the all the time and it being there 10 weeks taking three or four classes a day mm. uh, studying tango uh, started doing a little bit of ballet um, yoga Okay. And uh, and contemporary dance, and so that was sort of the beginning of my my journey into dance as well. So I, you know, I, I was doing that for for a good ten weeks intensively, and it was an, an amazing. I went back to London for a little bit, and then I went back again, um, and studied for another five months um, to really focus on dancing. And wow, okay, so the yeah. acting and the dancing, huh? Yeah, wow, absolutely. Okay. Modern, modern day Fred Astaire. Huh? So, <laughs> I wish I wish that tap was was part of that too, but it's not mm. unfortunately. But you know, so now I'm, you know, as I do some dance classes mm. and, I, and I teach um, some dance with my with my dance partner, and it's it's awesome. Mm. Um, and you know, I, I end up in New York um, through going back to school, um, doing doing acting, um, and so I you know now. I was teaching tango, taking mm. acting classes, wow, starting to okay. work in a restaurant cool. again, and mm. it was it was a blast. Um, but also, you know, in New York, it's a hustle always. Right, right. Yeah, you got to hustle in New York, definitely. Absolutely. So now, with with the Argentina, since we're we're uh, you know having some wine and 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 uh, you know one bottle at a time is the podcast. Malbec. Malbec. Oh, so yeah. now, from my experience, you got to help me with this since you're the the beverage director. Now, from my experience, Malbec is very polarizing. Uh, as the uh, Argentinian and Chilean incarnation goes, mm -hmm. so from my uh, understanding, the, the grape originated in France, and it's still used in France. Uh, I think it's used more in blends as opposed to just a pure wine itself. So in my experience, uh, with the Malbec, there's two worlds that I kind of hear about. One world is, uh, well, it's uh, cheap liquor store wine. You know, if, if you don't have a lot of money, if you got 10 bucks, you can go to the local liquor store, you can grab a, a bottle of Malbec and, you know, and it, it, you, you'll be okay. And then uh, there's people that I know that are wine aficionados or, you know, 
connoisseurs or people that like to drink wine and don't mind spending a good a good price for a bottle a lot of them tend to poo-poo Malbec they you know they kind of look at that as uh oh, Malbec eh, that's uh, I don't I, I can't even stomach it Which I, is you know, shame. that's that's the argument that I get so now you you live there you lived in Argentina right. so you know help me out with that is it do they I mean you know do they send you know do they export a certain a certain quality versus the quality that they keep there and and also kind of help me with that polarization argument I, th I mean Malbec isn't a I think for me is an amazing variety because um, it has a lot of great things going for it and you know and it's originally from Cahors which is just east of Bordeaux and old school and you know back in the day um, Malbec was in all the Bordeaux blends mm. and um, you can still get some really great great Malbecs from Cahors and you know straight Malbecs and they're amazing mm. um, in terms of you know like in terms of wines from from France you know Bordeaux took over and the, all the wineries in Cahors you know really took a, a back step and uh, a step back and, and and really in terms of quality they really fell apart um, and now there's a real renaissance in France so you know if mm. if any listener has never had any Cahors or Malbec now is the time because the stuff is still cheap and great <laughs> so um, now how does that compare to to your taste anyway to the to the South American Malbec? so in uh, you know it's a little cleaner often it's has a bit more I feel for me um, the Argentine Malbecs tend to be a little bit, has a more spice on it, whereas mm. the French tend to be a little bit cleaner on the fruit. It's also mm. obviously a little cooler climate there. Whereas in, in Argentina, you have more elevation, particularly mm. in, in Mendoza. Mm. And, um, and it's a huge country, and so you get a lot of you know, high-volume Malbec, which, mm. is, which is cheap. And also the, the the currency thing will play into that too that you get you know right, right. cheaper cheaper wines just because of the currency, currency. Right. The exchange rate right absolutely right. Um, yeah. so um, but Malbec at its best uh, is amazing uh, mm. it's got great ageability uh, it's got you know acid is is so important in aging uh, mm. it's got good tannin structure uh, it's got good fruit. Uh, you know, and it, it can be a, a, an amazing wine, and and it's you know, and unfortunately, Argentina has pumped out a lot of Malbec, but mm. also it has created an incredible industry around around that variety, particularly there. And uh, and so you know, yes, you can get fine ch fine cheap Malbec, but you can find medium priced Malbecs that are going to be great, mm. and you can find. Some so now you s when you say. Medium price, right? You, we're looking at the the Argentini, the South American Argentina, yeah, Chilean, yeah. right? Right. Okay. I mean, Ch Chile Quality for wise, sure. Right. I mean, right. Chile is again is the same. You know, it's it's a it's a new, it's kind of the new world. You know, it's the, the, right. the, not the wild west, but it's right. people are, you know, making great wines at affordable prices because mm. the land is cheap. Mm. Um, and you know, I some of the greatest for me in Argent Argentina, some of the greatest Malbecs I've had were super high elevation so mm. like it's cool you have a you have good sun but mm. um the the weather is you know at night it cools down so they keep acid in the in the in the grapes um and it at sometimes it drinks almost like you know pinot noir it's it mm. can be really beautiful 
Okay. Um, so, you know, I would encourage anyone to go and ask for, you know, a single varietal Malbec, okay. Sing okay. Single, single vineyard Malbec from Argentina, and, it, it, you know, it can be really amazing. Okay. So at that particular uh, price point and at that particular level, Malbec can be something uh, that's enjoyed just as well as anything else. Absolutely. So, okay. So yeah, for amazing. those out there who who poo-poo Malbec, <laughs> because I think I've seen a couple of uh, uh, wine blogs, and uh, their tagline, one of them, the tagline was uh, uh, educating the Malbec crowd, one wine at a time. Absolutely. And a, uh, another tagline was educating the yellowtail crowd, one wine at a time. <laughs> so, you know, once again, you know, people, there, there, there is a, a uh, part of the uh, wine, I guess the wine intelligentsia i guess that you know malbec is not for whatever reason it's it's not on their on their list so that and that's where the polarization goes so. i think also i mean we, we see it all the time that sort of new york and that, that the coasts tend to be the first in terms of not innovation but in terms of the new things and right, wine right um because the market is so competitive and you get a lot of you know new product and all the time so um but even here you know, people will see a Malbec. I mean, I, I'm running a Malbec from France by the glass right now, and it's 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 um, excellent. And people will be like, "Oh, right, surprise!" Malbec from France is that right. a thing? I'm like, right. "Oh yeah, that's where <laughs> that's it's from. That's where it started, right? 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 But in <laughs> Argentina has great, you know, mm. has a gr amazing um, climate for Malbec too. So mm. they're different uh, in the way, but they're you know you should. Is with anything always important to go and be like, wow, this is something that I know. I'm going to try something a little different. Mm. Maybe, right. you know, like, right. I'll let me try a Malbec from France. Mm. Let me try a Malbec. Maybe that's not eight bucks, um, mm. you know, in the liquor store or right, like $10. Right, right. But maybe let's try one for $20 and exactly. see what the difference right. is. Because I think you'll be surprised. Mm. Mm. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. Okay. Yeah. So now with the, you know, I just want to go back to the uh, tango dancing in Argentina and your, your mom wanted you to go to Argentina to learn tango so now you could have learned the tango in England you could have learned it in Germany uh, you know you could have learned it anywhere from a good teacher but I guess since uh, you know Argentina is kind of the home of the tango I guess where else would you <laughs> want to learn exactly. the tango kind of like uh, I guess like kind of like sailing you know I guess a person could learn to sail on uh, Flathead Lake in Montana, but you know they, you know they choose or their parents. Hey, we're going to send you to San Francisco and learn right. to sail because you know that's that's the place where the wind is always blowing. So you'll learn to be a good sailor in San Francisco. I think <laughs> so, if you go if you go to the source, you know you get a very different experience. Right. Than you go somewhere else. Right. Right. Okay. So. All right. So now before we, uh, I guess, talk about kind of you know your 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 adventure from. Argentina to New York. Just want to get a little quick little uh, uh, morsel from you, uh, no pun intended, on uh, the change that you had when you went from England to Argentina in terms of the cuisine. You know, what was what was was that a shock to your palate or was it enlightening? What was that like changing changing? You know, I guess uh, culinary experiences. What was that like from England to Argentina, what was that like? So, <laughs> I suddenly had 
it was affordable for me to eat a lot of steak. Um, <laughs> so that was fantastic. And mm. um, I mean, food is incredibly cheap uh, in, in in Buenos Aires, or at least it was. Or you know, I think you know, if you go to anywhere in South America, you go produce is incredible fruit is incredible it mm. just tastes amazing mm. um you know so when you used to sort of the the old supermarket chilled <laughs> fruit it, you know you you eat a real fresh tomato that's an entirely different thing so mm. um but as, as you know i was i was able to I had had saved up some money and I was able to go and go into restaurants and eat for some, for nothing at all. Have, mm. a, have an entrecot, a mm. salad, and wow. a, a big glass of wine, and didn't cost anything at all. Mm. And uh, it was amazing. Um, so, you know, English cuisine gets also a bad rap, right? Right. Uh, which is a shame because <laughs> actually there's a lot of wonderful things in England mm. to eat. Mm. You know, and you know, vis a like a shepherd's pie, or you know, but it's <laughs> definitely like homey food and right, right. fresh you know uh, f- fresh fruit fresh salad you know fresh tomatoes and, and a great steak is an incre- is amazing okay. um, but mm. I, I'm sure I did some damage to my health in, in that time by drinking way too much uh, wine and Malbec and eating way too many steaks okay so now uh, in Argentina as far as the wine goes if, if I'm in if I'm in Buenos Aires and I go to a a nice restaurant and I look at the wine list does Malbec dominate the wine list or is or is it uh, just kind of mixed in with everybody else it does um, but there's also great Cabernet Sauvignon um, there's great Tarantas which is a, which is a white uh, mm-hmm. and you know you, you do get different varieties out there as well um, I mean you have of course, international varietals there, um, mm. predominantly, and particularly because it's also been made there at l- large, you know, large quantities for international market as well. You know, but mm. um, you know, wine is cheap, mm. and you can, you know, <laughs> if when you don't have a, too much money, you can get a bottle of bottle of wine for you know not that much, not that much money. But I also know, for example, that there are people who are, you know. I was living with somebody, and he was like, "Oh, my back. It's uh, right. my means bad, and it's the bad grape." Right, right. Um, so people wouldn't, you know, sometimes wouldn't drink it. But um, is anything in, in 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 a lot of different places? You know, getting a, a local wine is is super cheap, and a, and a glass of you know mm. your house wine doesn't cost you anything at all. So that yeah. was mostly my my uh, my thing of like oh I have a glass of red right, right. boom and then <laughs> sometimes you don't know what it is but it's delicious because you're sitting in the sun and having it you know hmm. okay all right so now let's go back to uh, New York you arrive in New York and so I joined an uh, an acting conservatory um, and it was. It was great, uh, you know. I did did theater, and I uh, and I you know started directing as again as well, and uh, we um, we you know we did that. I did that for about two and a half years, and um, I started working in restaurants again. And about I would say about six years or so, I I I started working here and. And then I took over as as the wine director here um, about four years ago. Or so so I've been in charge of this this place and the and, and the list here for a while. So it's been it's been really fun. 
Um, and the f I've tried to change the focus on by the glass stuff, a bigger by the glass uh, options, and just have have you know fast evolving like lots of rotation in the in the in the list, and and try to make it as um, as interesting as possible because this is really a lot of. Uh, um, a lot of um, you know by the glass stuff here, and people are people are obviously like coming into a wine bar trying different things. So mm. it's it's interesting to see what people do and and tastes change over the, even over the past four years. You know, you really see a difference. Mm. Mm. So now, from a from a uh, you know, if you don't mind, from a business standpoint, sure. uh, by the glass uh, versus the bottle, because th obviously there there are people that. You know, when they come to a wine bar, or or even if they go to a restaurant, for the most part, they'll they'll have their wine by the glass, and then they'll they're people that uh, they'll buy a bottle. So you know, I you know, is that a difficult trick, trying to keep your quality by the glass, you know, at that price point versus you know the bottle, you know, in terms of in terms of quality, is that a, you know for for a person like yourself that's a beverage director. Is that a difficult trick to keep a good quality wine at a by the class price? Sure. I mean, it always makes sense to buy the bottle, I think. Mm. Um, I mean, in most places, because just from an economical point of view, the markup on a bottle is never as high as by the glass because you have to sort of calculate in you know, spillage and, mm. you know, like if somebody doesn't finish the bottle, you know, and it's open for, you know, however long, you know, you're going to have to throw it away because it's going to be, you know, it's not going to be good anymore. It's not going to be fresh. Mm. So I always, you know, encourage buying the bottle because if you crack it, it's open right there and then you don't know how, you know. Right. Because right. I know places where, the you know, you have a glass and you... Well, this has been open for like at least three <laughs> days, um, and this right, is right, no good. Right, right. Maybe longer than that. Maybe longer than that. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, from my experience, one of the things that I that I see that happens uh, is that one of the ways I can tell that the wine is bad is uh, the person that pours the glass. They top it off. <laughs> so, especially here in New York, if if, if I go to a wine bar. And I get a glass of wine by the glass, and he tops it off. Usually, I'm kind of wary of that. So right, that's right. that. That kind of tells me he's trying to get rid of something, right? You know. And then, you know, for my palate, and probably for yours at this point, something like that. Usually, once you once you give it the nose, you know right away. You, you know? do. You, I mean, you, as soon as your nose, yeah. you know, your nose can tell your tongue, nah, I don't want this. Uh uh. You know, and you could just kind of like slide it right back to him. <laughs> it's like it's always worth to say, like, hey, but that's business. I, I mean, obviously, this? it's the business Absolutely. thing. So, yeah. you know, I can understand it. So, I, th I mean, you know, we have a slightly different philo um, philosophy here, which which is to say, okay, well, we have rather than doing like a times two or whatever it is, um, depending on the bottle on on the bottle list, we have a fixed um, restaurant profit plus the wholesale. Right. Um, so. You know, for us, it doesn't. It's the same work for us to open a bottle that cost us thirteen dollars, or a bottle that cost us eighty dollars. Mm. Um, and so we try to encourage um, 
interesting buys, people like going into something like, okay, who will like try this? You've never tried this before, it's by the bottle, but it's not going to be so expensive that it's prohibited. Um, so for, it's in a way for us to try to be able to offer wines by the bottle that are that you wouldn't normally buy because they're too expensive. Um, and in, in terms of by the glass, you know, you I think you want to switch it up always. Uh, you mm. want to have some cool items on there that are going to be different. Uh, and you want to encourage people to, you know, to push them into things they haven't had before. So it's definitely an educational aspect to curating a, 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 a wine list mm. that is going to be pushing people's ideas about what, what a wine can be. So, for example, I have by the glass uh, a Malbec from Kaor mm. because... Most people would have had a Malbec from Argentina a hundred times, and if it's their default choice, then I'm going to give them something that they might not expect. Right. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. And at the same time, when you have, I mean, you have to have Cabernet, obviously. You have to have a Sauvignon Blanc. You have to have the sort of main varietals. But when you do, when you do have the main varietals, when people have their default choices, I think you should. It's always it's always interesting to say, okay, like this is what you know this is, but I'm going to give it in a different way because that might just advance, you know, your experiential horizon in a way that you maybe not expect. And you're probably going to like it because the framework is still the same. Right, right. Mm. Okay. So now, uh, kind of, kind of uh, with the same discussion that we had with the Malbec, I want to turn the corner and... Do that same discussion with Syrah. Sure. So, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a petite Syrah fan myself. All right. I like the uh, I like a lot of the stuff that comes out of Washington State. You know, the petite Syrahs, California too. But I I'm, I like the Col Columbia River Valley stuff. I, mm -hmm. I really enjoy that. You know, quite a bit. Uh, so with the Syrah, I guess like the Malbec, it's a French of a French origin. And, uh, you know, here in the U.S., we get quite a bit of it from California, Washington State. Uh, I don't, Oregon, I don't know about Syrah too much. but uh, And then also there's uh, Australia with the, with the Shiraz. Right. So, you know, from my experience, from my tasting, you know, I, I've had an opportunity to taste uh, some of the Hermitage and the Cornas uh, Syrah versus the California uh, versus the uh, Australia, and the uh, the French is uh, it's a totally different animal in terms of taste, body, you know, terroir, everything. It's 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 a completely different animal from the California and the Australia. Right. So can you can you help uh, kind of explain to our audience or educate our audience, you know, uh, the differences in the. Uh, the French Malbec, the Cornas, the Hermitage, you know, uh, versus the California, Washington State, Australia. So tell us a little bit about right, that. So in terms of Syrah, um, I think it's important to also know like that um, like Petit Syrah and Syrah are not exactly, uh, they're not related in that way, so they're actually okay. very different varietals. Um, and then in terms of you know, Syrah or Shiraz from Australia um, in, in the old world, which is, of course, like France and, you know, or basically Europe and the new world, which is basically all the, the, the new world that is not, anything that is not Europe is basically new world. <laughs> um, so it's always important to look at climate 
um, you know, where is where is the grape grown and and, and temperature. Um, so, you know, although France is obviously a warm a warmer place, and uh, you know, Syrah really enjoys warmer climates. So, you know, you're gonna have it in the Rhone uh, rather than in say Burgundy or you know, in in Bordeaux, which are actually pretty cool. Mm. Um, so you you know it's Syrah likes that that warmer climate that the Rhone gives, which is Mediterranean or or indeed you know more of that sort of like harder climate in California or in Australia or in Washington State, right. um, because you know that that Columbia Valley area that that whole area actually get, you know it's quite it's desert you right, know, right, it's very, right. so you, you get high high temperatures at night uh, during the day and then also what's great for any varietal is cool climatures. Um, at night because that is going to retain your acid and that's going to retain the brightness of the fruit mm. um, so you know in in France you know you have the you know Côte Roti and, and Hermitage and all those mm. in, in the blends in the general blends of the Côte Rouen which normally uh, Grenache, Syrah and Mourvet mm. um, it plays a vital part because it gives that structure it gives that that roundness it gives that fruit as well but they are you know they can be pretty big wines and um, particularly when you see it in a hot climate like California like in the Columbia Valley or like in Australia you you get you know they can be big right. boozy boozy right. wines <laughs> especially Australia yeah absolutely right, right, you know, right, right, it's not right. I've seen Shiraz at like 16.5 right, right. it's like wow <laughs> <laughs> you did that. <laughs> yeah, Shiraz's can be, uh, yeah, if you, yeah, they'll wake you up. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, they're beautiful wines and, right, and they're right. in- incredibly well made. But, um, you know, with, with anything, you know, you can have a, I mean, Pinot is a good example. You know, you can have a Pinot out of Oregon or out of Burgundy. Um, that is going to be nice, high acid, like really bright, really clean. Um, you get all that, that red fruit stuff or you can have a Pinot out of Napa and that is going to mm. be jammy and you're going to get all that black fruit and that like bigger style and that more opulent style that is just that comes from the fact that the wine you know was the grapes were hanging in, in the sun in a hot area and like they got they got very ripe and you had a lot of sugar in there and then when you do fermentation you know that you you know you're going to you're going to make that into a boozy wine you know mm. And that is, of course, also a winemaker's choice. You know, you can choose right. not to pick so early. You can, you know, let the bricks go up, and then, or you can say, you know what, I'm going to pick early. I'm going to, you know, make sure that the that the alcohol is is, you know, within the 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 area that I wanted. I want to make sure the acid's still there. Um, and you know, that 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 is the winemaker's job. You know, mm. that is that's what's so beautiful about winemaking is you can you can make. A, you can have one area mm. and you have two winemakers next to each other and they have the same weather they have the same you know grapes and you're going to have entirely different wines and that's <laughs> right, so exciting right. it's kind of like children absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> right? same parents yeah. same household yeah. diff- different personalities exactly yeah. you know wow cool so now in your in your wine uh, journey and in your wine education have you had occasion to uh, visit any of the uh, regions around the world or here in the U.S. and spend some time uh, kind of observing the process a- as it is? Abs- I mean, absolutely. Um, I've, now we are in New York, so going to Europe is always a little difficult. Uh, mm. But I'm, I'm obviously from, from Germany, so I, I've been to 
German, the German regions, you know, the Rheingau and, and all that stuff in, in Italy, in the Alto Adige, in Tuscany. Uh, I, there's actually a small wine region right close to where I live called mm. the Saale Umstrut, and mm. it doesn't have any sort of international distribution or anything right, like that, right. but uh, <laughs> it's, an, it's beautiful, and I, I, I love being there. But specifically as a... Uh, as an in, you know, somebody who works in the industry, I've been I've been to California a couple times, mm. and uh, most recently, recently I've been to the uh, the Russian River Valley mm. in Sonoma County, and it's mm-hmm. it's an incredible place. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, as as a as a wine director, I, you know, it's really exciting to see the people you work with on you know here on on this side on the east coast and you, you pull their wines and you you know you, you taste them and you right, sell right. them right right and then you go <laughs> to the winery and picking picking grapes and 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 doing doing the, some of the work in the in the cellar it's right. uh, when that translates in, into the wine it's really really cool to see mm. um so it, i i love being being out there and um and i'm always surprised whenever you go to the wine region wherever it may be that, you know, they will send out their wines that they have, you know, that mm. sort of like signature wines. But when you're actually there, a lot of the people make other small wines, you know, like they have a block of Gewurztraminer or they have a block mm. of Riesling and they go, okay, you know, try this. This is really cool. This is from 2006 Riesling. And I've never, you know, I've never had a, a Russian River Valley Riesling and it was, it was fantastic. Mm. You know, it was absolutely amazing, and mm. and to be able to be there with the wine, with the winemakers and 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 talk to them and and see their their wine, you know, mm. the wineries that they have and the their sort of like small cool projects they have on the side and they're experimenting on the side on on different varieties on different blocks and and see what works and it's a constant evolving thing for them. Mm. And it's not just about you know pumping Pinot Noir and Chardonnay at the Russian <laughs> Valley. You know, well, you know, I, I have a you know, myself. I have a, a favorite uh, Russian River Valley Pinot Noir. Uh, uh, not going to say the 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 the, uh, <laughs> the venture, but you know, one of, kind of with the one of one of the ones with the nice red wax top. Absolutely, but, <laughs> I think I probably know you know what you know which one it is. But that's 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 a really great wine. And I, I had the good fortune of uh, living in uh, Glen Ellen for a couple of years, uh, from uh, 2000 to 2002. So, uh, as a matter of fact, I live right next to a vineyard. I don't know what it's called now, but at the time it was called Valley of the Moon. I know Valley of the Moon. Right, right. Well, I, I don't think it's Valley of the Moon anymore, but but it was. Uh, I lived there a couple of years, and it was it was a. Uh, you know, I lived in an apartment complex that was right next to that that uh, vineyard. So, you know, I would walk, take walks, and go and relax there. And I got to experience the wine climate, the Mediterranean climate. Because, sure. I mean, in the summertime, it would uh, it would get as high as maybe 92, 93 degrees, and uh, you could set your watch, you know, around maybe 5:36 p.m. It went down. It went down to anywhere from maybe 56 to 62, 63 every every day. So that's the uh, you know obviously that's <clears throat> that's that good you know grape growing climate you know where you get the hot days and the cool evenings to you know kind of cool things off. And yeah. uh, uh, as I understand, that's the influence of the Pacific. 
you know, uh, you know kind of yeah, I mean, cool things in, off for in Sonoma for sure. Right, you know, in you Sonoma, get the, cool, the cool air. Right, through. right. Because also, I remember going to uh, uh, on a fishing trip in that area, and we went to uh, Bodega Bay, which is not too far from there. Sure. Uh, that famous uh, movie, The Birds, was filmed there in uh, in, in Bodega Bay, and wow, it was in the middle of the day with that, you know, with the wind and the water and it was unbearable. Yeah, I mean, I've, <laughs> I've been there. And it's it was, yeah, absolutely yeah, beautiful. Yeah, it is. It is beautiful. The the the, the hills and and the and the uh, the water and the river and also, uh, you know, kind of getting back to Shakespeare. We'll fast forward to uh, Jack London, you know, who uh, had a place there in Sonoma where he did some of his writing and had a home. He's in uh, one of my favorite writers, you know. So, you know, very definitely a very idyllic. Idyllic place, you know, Sonoma. So now, did you have occasion to visit any places in uh, in Napa? We've been to Napa. Um, I saw a couple of folks out there. I was staying um, with some people at work. Um, some of the wineries out there, and, and I mean, Napa is gorgeous. Um, and I mean, the wines are obviously incredible, and and mm. they have great great reputation with you know with. For everyone in the, around the world, and and they deserve that uh, thoroughly. Um, I find I found for me that because the the way the the valley is set up, you have those two roads, you know. Mm. Um, and when when you go over to Sonoma, it's much much more winding roads. It's mm. you no, know, yeah, it's back back roads, and then you sort of like come across a winery on the side of the you know street. That there's some some guy making some some batch of something <laughs> right, in, right, in, right. The, in the garage and <laughs> i really enjoy that you know it's it, napa is amazing and and you see these wineries and they are they're doing some great work and and and, and all and everyone there is super talented um mm. and you know but it's also really cool to be able to go and take take off the the the, the walk path and, and be able to to meet some some people who are just starting out or like doing a little private batch or mm. doing some you know random winery you have never heard of because mm. they only do you know mailing list or they're just starting out and going there and seeing them and meeting those people and they're so lovely and it's it's incredible mm. so uh, for me, like I would, anybody go to Napa, do oh those yeah, things, definitely, yeah. and then go into Sonoma and ride around and and, mm. and see some of the smaller guys too. You know, mm. it's, it's well, I cool. always tell people that I know uh, when they get an opportunity to go to California for the first time. Sure, I always tell them to go to to Northern California. I always yeah. tell them to go to as opposed to Los Angeles, go to San Francisco first. You know, uh, go see the redwoods, go to Lake Tahoe. You know, because I guess for a lot of the world their education about what California is, is Hollywood. Right. You know, it's the oh, movies. LA. Right, yeah. L.A. It's L.A. So people, you know, that's the bright lights, big city for California. And uh, I always encourage people that I know to go to, you know, go to San Francisco and, and start there and work your way to, to, you know, like you said, go go see the vineyards, go see Sonoma, go to, you know, if you can, get go to Lake Tahoe. You know, go to see the Redwoods. It's, it's really, really beautiful, you know, before you see... Uh, you know, L.A. and Hollywood and all of that. And uh, in that vein, uh, I'd like you to talk about uh, old world versus new world uh, from the perspective of uh, California in the new world versus Europe. 
So a lot of arguments that I hear from a lot of people is that uh, in the old world, particularly in France and in, in Italy and Spain, uh, the wine follows the tradition as it's made. The people that are making the wine, they follow the tradition. They follow the terroir, they follow the climate, they follow the rain. Whatever rain they get, they take. They don't, you know, they don't particularly do the irrigation, things like that. And versus California, where, you know, the irrigation is a must because of the, you know, you have the, the ups and downs in terms of what you get in terms of uh, water. You know, you may have a year of no water. California is just coming out of a very severe drought. So a lot of people uh, kind of went to the well, so to speak. And also in California, a lot of times we hear that the winemakers don't necessarily follow uh, a tradition or a, a conviction to making good wine. It's all about the money. So you have uh, an actor or you have a director and these people, they have money. And they buy a vineyard and, and they put their name on the bottle because they, they know if they put their name on the bottle, it's going to sell. So no matter what the quality is, it's going to sell. So help me out with that. Help me out with the California money makes wine versus the old world. We put our heart into this. Help me out with that, that particular argument in terms of what you get in terms of quality. So... <laughs> I hope that's not that's too a, too much. That's a that's a big that's a big question. Okay, so let me let me address some of these. I, I I think yes, of course, there are people who are who are in the business, and you know, like in the end of the day, it's it's business, and you you have to somehow make a living out of it. Whether right. whether you're a farmer in a cooperative in Italy, or whether you're you know a a conglomerate. A uh, huge company that that owns billions of dollars of you know investments and 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 land in California or wherever it may be, um, but normally the people on the ground who make the wine are incredibly talented and they make mm -hmm. some great wines. Um, and so there is there is also understanding of like, of what price point can be, uh, mm -hmm. and sometimes you know. People don't want to spend forty dollars for a single vineyard, beautiful right. Pinot from right. wherever it may Russian be. River, or Russian <laughs> River, for example. Right, right, right. And they just want to have a Cabernet from California, and that's probably going to be in the Central Coast, and that's or like you know somewhere in Central California, and they're gonna they have a huge vineyards and their bulk wines, and that's what that's it. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think um, I think in that that way, you know, the winemakers are. They're normally teams, and they have to make a product. You know, mm. whether it is a, you know, whether you're making Coca-Cola or you're making uh, something different, it kind of depends. Um, but in terms of the the old world versus versus the new world, you know, I think in innovation, and I think Australia for ex is actually a really good example of that because in Australia they a lot of the wine making technique innovation came you know in the, in the 80s and 90s out of Australia you mm. know they were like okay like let's what how can we make this better uh, how can you know we, they brought over wine from their you know 
Italian grandfather and like how can we make this better and sometimes sometimes the old world can be stuck in tradition mm. um, and saying well this is how my great great grandfather did it and that's we're gonna do that just the same way and you know it ends up actually being um, a lesser lesser wine not necessarily not necessarily lesser but perhaps you know what the focus is is going to be this is going to taste like this wine that this family has made mm. and that is fine that's amazing mm. um, but sometimes you want to you know you want to put your focus on the wine itself and then you want to as a winemaker you want to get out of the way of the wine mm. you know what can you do to make this the process as clean as you know hygienic make sure there is no weird things you know living and and <laughs> multiplying in the wine that you don't want there you know? right. like, so it's sometimes it's about just clean clean wine making processes and and those some and those have uh to some extent come out of the new world um mm. also of course out of like the great wine schools in in, in bordeaux and, and wherever um and yeah so you know that's it's um there's often tradition and and you know when you work with with wine making families have been doing it for a long time sometimes you have to fight that a little bit where you have to say okay i know that's the way you've been doing this but i think you need to maybe change one or two things about the way you're doing it in order to stay competitive and also in order for you to keep selling the wine that you want to sell um and that sometimes can be i think a tough tough conversation you know? mm. um, and f for example like uh, Paul Hobbs who, who is a great winemaker out of, from New York but obviously has places in, in, in California and all over the world that's, that's often what he does has that conversation with people and be like they do a joint venture and they say okay like how can we make your winemaking techniques better and a little bit cleaner and, and produce the best fruit possible to put into, into the bottle Mm. Um, but in terms of the um, the old world versus new world, you know, I think that in the new world there weren't really any traditions that you know those vi vineyards are maybe 150 years old. You mm. know, those vines have not been in the ground and that long. Um, you know, and of course in, in Europe you had you know the um, they had been replanted, um, but the the traditions have been the same, and and so you know people have to create their own new traditions. They have to create something different. Mm -hmm. How how do you stand out against everybody else? And sometimes you don't have the name that's been handed down from for generations. You know that this family has made wine for like 400 years. You know, so you ha how can you make something new that is gonna be the new name and you know like Robert Mondavi is a good example right, and, like, right. people will buy Mondavi wine because Mondavi wine is going to be great um, so you know how can you innovate in that marketplace um, mm. beyond selling saying it's Cabernet Sauvignon out of California <laughs> you know, so okay uh, so at the end of the day uh, old world new world it's you know it's business it's business and, so, right, you know, it's also right. taste it's still, it's still business right taste, yeah it's right. also taste I mean you know you, you're gonna uh, uh, Montepulciano is a Montepulciano uh, right, right. a Barolo is a Barolo you right. know you, it's 
a very hard on you know impossible to replicate that it's mm. it's just what it is and mm. people go one Barolo because it's amazing and beautiful mm. um, but at the same time people want to buy Napa Cabernet because they want to buy Napa Cabernet and taste a very specific way and I think over the next you know it is happening now that you're like now people know what Napa Cab is and people buy it on on the back of that mm. whereas for new regions you know sometimes I don't I'm not sure how many people have a specific idea about what Washington State, you know, or like Columbia Valley Cabernet tastes like, because mm. they may have not been exposed to it, but there's going to come a point when, in 20, 30, 40 years time, when that is its own identity, and mm. you know, you have to create those identities, you know, same with Pinot from Oregon. Mm. You know, 30 years ago, nobody right, exactly. knew what Pinot from Oregon <laughs> right. would be, you know, right. but now it's like, oh, this is, this is what it tastes like, right. you know. So that's how you create an essentially like an AVA or right. like, you know, they have a right. very specific identity of very mm. specific varieties in a specific place. Mm. So at the end of the day, just like everything else, the people on the ground that do the hard work determine the quality of what the world gets. Absolutely. So like you said, Oregon, who would have thought? Right. right. So, and, and, and it's at the point now where uh, a lot of people you know, say that, you know, the Willamette Valley is just as good as anything out of, uh, you know, out of, out, out of Burgundy, you know, so. I think the French <laughs> would probably disagree. <laughs> of course, uh, they would disagree, you know. Of course, of course, the French would disagree <laughs> with that. But, you know, I mean, some people, you know, some people give it argument, you know. I'm a, I'm I a, think so. I'm, I'm, I'm a Willamette Valley fan myself, so. I, you know. It's wonderful. Um, yeah. And, you, you know, you have to always see... Um, when you're there uh, and what you like. Um, right. And then that's also what it comes down to. At the end of the day, it's what you enjoy. Right, what you like, you're right, you're right. And what is going to bring right. you joy in the right. class and what's going to be fantastic. Right. And I think that is, in the end of the day, what is going to, you know, you know, what's the most important. You're right, okay. You should enjoy what you drink. Right. And, now, uh, speaking of yeah. enjoy, uh, I know you mentioned to me your, your first taste of wine, your, your parents introduced you to. So, but I want you to give me the wine that you had, you know, the first wine that you had that really kind of knocked your socks off and said that, oh, I like this and I want to explore. You know, what was the first wine that you had? You know, because for me, for me, it was a Bordeaux. You know, I had a Bordeaux at one time and from there it was like, wow, you know, you know, something can be this good, it can be this complex and uh, it can be enjoyed among friends, you know, which is one of the things that wine. What was that wine for you? What, what did it for you? What was the wine that you had that kind of knocked your socks off? I think I'm not sure if I had like early on, because I know some people, you know, like you said, you have like, there was one moment when this was the perfect wine and boom, right, that's right, it. Right. Yeah. I was... I always enjoyed wine, but um, the wine that that really got me, which was a little bit later on, was um, and and that really made me rethink the way I think wine is was a a riesling mm. that was 15 years old, and wow. it was the most amazing wine I've ever had. It was incredible, mm. and. Um, you know, because I've 
because before then, you know, I was like everybody else, like, oh, why, why do you have to drink within the first three years? Otherwise, right, it's right, bad, right, know, right. So <laughs> um, but in fact, you know, like people know, like you can drink Chardonnay from you know Burgundy, you know white Burgundy. That's gonna be old, 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 and it's amazing. And the mm. same with Riesling, you can have some incredible Rieslings, and it was like petrally and beautiful and, and weird, and, and, wow. and it it just was like boom. I was like, oh. That's what reasoning is. Wow. I get it. Mm. I want to have this all the time. It's okay. amazing. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, we're going to take a little break right now. And then uh, we'll continue. This is Ronald Dorsey. And this is the One Bottle at a Time podcast. And today we're enjoying some conversation with Mr. Lucas Weikert at the Wind Up Wine Bar in New York City. So, Let the whole world know the deal. 